0: Good morning and welcome to Grace, I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's message is a controversial one, especially in our most recent times with our contemporary political climate and a growing division in human government regards to overreach and agendas, policy, and how current legislative decisions can spill over into the private sector and most especially, even into the church. Thanks for listening today as we examine what God's Word teaches us about honoring Him in our submission to the ruling authorities. Uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a joy to worship with you today. When uh, I was much younger, I can remember a time I got old enough that my parents decided they could go out on a date and they could leave my sister and I home alone. <laughs> Right. home alone finally and I remember being given a little sense of uh, delegated authority from my parents because of course I was not gonna say more responsible but I'm the older one right so as my parents made their way out you'd think as a child of all those little things that you could get into those cupboards you should stay out of uh, and though we were good kids my sister and I I do remember that this one particular time uh, she and I got in a fight which we normally do um, but I was, by virtue of being older and therefore given more responsibility, I had actually grown more stronger than my sister at this point. And in the middle of this tussle, I remember I, I threw her down to the ground expecting that she was going to come back up and keep sparring with me, but she didn't. In fact, she, uh, she, she stayed on the ground and she just started to cry. Like this is very keen in my memory being aware because two things came to my awareness at that moment. Number one, I was actually physically stronger than my sister. And number two, I was going to be in big trouble when my dad got home. (laughs) So yes, out of her mouth was, I'm going to tell on you. See, you got to be very careful for those who are given a limited amount of power of oversight when you're still peers. I saw an example of this yesterday. Uh, Emily and I decided to go on a walk uh, and we went to City Park. And uh, there at City Park, they had a bunch of cars and what looked like like a little boy's birthday party. Now I'm not talking young men, I'm talking boys. And they had out on the playground, All of this riffraff going on. I mean, we sat there watching them almost comically because it's kind of fun to watch boys get into trouble, isn't it? Anybody? Right? It's a little fun to watch, especially on a playground. Uh, They have this one thing that spins around in a circle, and the boys decided to take the smallest of them and hang him from it, and then they would spin it as fast as they could so the centrifugal force of this little dude was like Superman flying around. Uh, They have this other teeter-totter. It's a four-seater, and these brilliant little boys decided they would try to max it out so that you could spring your buddy off into the air. So you got a bunch of these little Elon Musks all deciding how they're going to launch their buddy up into space. It was awesome. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) I remember being a little boy. And, and there was one, one thing that you had as a bit of a trump card whenever you got into a tussle out on the playground or when you were misbehaving. And I don't know if you guys remember this too, but do you remember being little? And if something didn't go your way, if, if, there, were, if there was some injustice that was happening while you were roughhousing, do you remember what you would say? I'm going to tell, tell my dad was the one. I heard a mom out here too, but that's true. If You, you, you may say, I'm going to tell my mom, I'm going to tell my dad on you. Do you guys remember this? There, there is an appeal that is made when there is an injustice amongst peers to a higher authority. We're, we're in a series that I've called I Was Wondering, and you all have given me some amazing questions. Um, I have in my own... Um, Difficulty decided to take the hardest of those questions. And today is one that from the moment I got it, I really have been ruminating over, studying over. I have uh, read thicker books. And in fact, I forgot one I was going to quote from today. That's probably in your benefit. But um, the, the question is a good one. It's a tough one. It's a timely one. Here's the question. What do I do? How should I respond? What if man's law conflicts? With God's word. That's a good question, isn't it? There was another one of the cards where the question was, why does church start at 930 instead of 950? I'd rather have that one really for today, right? That's a pretty easy question. But this is a good one. This is a question that not only is worth our time and understanding in our devotion to Jesus Christ as Lord. But this is a question that I think you and I are going to be very quickly able to identify is a timely one in our world today. How should the Christian respond when we see a peer level injustice by those who have been given a limited amount of authority over the rest of us, but who are actually in breach of the highest authority? What do we do? How do we as Christians respond? And we're going to be looking at a passage. In fact, this is the number one passage in the book of Romans on this subject. If you have your Bibles with you today, uh, uh, even if you don't, I invite you to take one out of the back of the pew in front of you, uh, follow along as we read through it. And as you're turning there, um, I just need to make sure I give a little bit of disclaimer as we begin. Um, The the first is that this is a controversial subject. So I I intend this to be potentially offensive to some people. My, my goal for a successful sermon is that nobody gets up and leaves in the middle of it. So let's hope that's how it goes. But I want to make sure you understand that the conclusions that we're going to find from God's word are not directed primarily at the American government. We're talking about government in general. All government. The very subject and institution itself is what we are going to be studying this morning. Additionally, uh, there's very little of what I will have to say that will apply generally to all people. What we'll find is that the conclusions that come from God's word apply to Christians. And this is where the offense comes. Let me just prime the pump for you on this so everybody kind of knows what you're in for. Jesus said if somebody slaps you on one cheek, you should what? How How naturally does that come to you? Anybody do that by default? Good. I got honest Christians this morning because in the same way that you find offense to that particular teaching of Jesus, I believe we may also find a sense of, I don't know, this is hard. This is one of those passages, folks, that I find difficult in my own life to know how to integrate. So I want to make sure you understand, even as I'm sharing these truths from God's word, they're they're not coming by my own authority. This comes from God to which I need to submit. And so that's where we're going to find ourselves for this this morning. Um, uh, Lastly, uh, before we look at what are some corrections and then the text, it also has been made all too keenly aware to me this past week that many times when I teach something, unfortunately, people just hear what they want to hear. So, please don't hear what you want to hear. Please don't twist my words to make it to something that I'm not saying. Um, If there is something that you find particularly difficult in today's message, please don't go find a group of people who you agree with and you can gossip about. Please come to me. And let's work through it together. That, that's my request to all of us as we, as we uh, started on this. But before we can land in our understanding of Romans 13, however, we have to begin with some preliminaries. Because there is, from the time of God's institution of starting government over man, mankind, um, there are some terrible errors that we have come up with. And so I need, I need to begin with some corrections. You'll find these listed out in your sermon notes. I don't know if many of you also noticed that the sermon notes have a back page today. So, <laughs> yep. OK, buckle up. Here we go. I'm going to go as quick as I can through these. And as we go through them, uh, it's important that you will also understand I'm moving quickly. Each one of these seven points would be worthy of an entire message in and of itself. But we're going to move quickly through them. So first correction, number one, there is no such thing as a division between the secular and the sacred. There is no such thing as a division where you have a particular area of life that God is allowed to speak into and then you have your secular life that's ruled by the governments of man. That is a fallacy. That that is a concoction of fallen, depraved humans' own desire to legitimize sinful behavior. There is no division here. Everything under the sun is privy to God's command, decree, and rule. So there is no division. Now, I'm not referencing, by the way, this is not a reference to what sometimes we hear as a separation between church and state. That's a completely different subject. I'm not referencing that. What I am referencing is the idea that's far too frequent in the Christian life of thinking that Sunday belongs to God, but Monday through Saturday, I can do with what I want. And, and, and unfortunately, government has also found a way of legitimizing behavior and action and decisions that fall under this false division. There's no such thing. There's no division of sacred and secular. God can speak and ought to speak to every sphere under the sun. Number two, government does not establish anything. It protects what God establishes. This one was a particular one that I uh, lost sleep over last night thinking through. Like, should I have worded it differently? Probably I should have, because there's a lot packed into this observation. What I want you to understand is the removal of government's establishment is predicated upon the subject of power. I was reading the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution last night. That's a tough read, let me tell you. (laughs) Uh, there, there is one line in there, right? In order to form, number one, a more perfect union. Does anyone know what the next line is? Yeah. yeah, establish justice. If I had any say, good thing I don't, but if I did, I probably would have preferred to use a different word than establish because that's not what governments do. They, they don't establish justice. Who, who, who comes up with justice? Man or God? God, God is the one who has established Justice. You know what governments need to do? Enforce it. That's what governments need to do. Uh, but if you if you get that a little bit wrong, you'll end up with an authority that's falsely derived with human power. God is the one who has the power, and in doing so, God is the one who establishes. Governments don't establish; they simply enforce, protect, uphold that which God establishes. Hopefully, hopefully that gets us mostly through the weeds on that one. Uh, number three, the center of social government. Uh, what, what I mean by center is like the, the building block. The, the fundamental component of social government is not the state. It's the family. If you look at society and the, and the social interactions that happen amongst human beings in any culture, anywhere on the earth, it is a false conclusion to think that the the foundational subset of that is the state or is human contrived government. That is not true. God actually has designed a more fundamental unit of social interaction and the at the base level, do you know what it is? It's the family. And and that's something that will speak into how we understand the role of government. By the way, all all seven of these that I'm sharing with you, all of these must be true. For us to make sense correctly of what God says in Romans chapter 13. And again, just for sake of time, I don't have all of the scriptural defenses for it. But let's go through the next number four. The ruler is not free to rule arbitrarily. So this was a problem uh, more through uh, the Middle Ages when you had monarchies. Because monarchies are always derived through genealogy. And the book of Ecclesiastes recognizes this. I don't know if you can remember all the way back then, but the question from the the wisdom writer of Ecclesiastes is, who's to know if the person who comes after you is going to be a a, a good person or a dummy? (laughs) Do you remember that? Who's to know if they're going to be smart and God-fearing and righteous or they're an idiot? You don't know. Except what's the problem with monarchy? Doesn't matter. And so what you have is power given to people who should have never had power. And in doing so, they think, like probably you and I would if we were in their shoes as well, this is a chance for me to do what I want to do. I already shared with you when I was like 12, guilty, right? Yeah, now's a chance for me to get away with what I want to do. It doesn't work that way. In fact, here's a helpful statement. If there is no God above the state then the state acts as though they are God. Is that frightening to anybody else? This, this makes me very glad as I, again, read through both the Declaration of Independence last night and the Constitution, that there is woven by the founders in our primary documents a recognition of God, right? That, that these uh, inalienable rights are derived from where? <laughs> from our Creator. And that they recognize that any government that's able to be governed governs by the authority of consent for those being governed. That's awesome language. That's incredible. Um, but there's a subtext to that, right? That the government only has power by the consent of the people. Well, where did you get it from? Where in the world did you get? See, see the subtext behind that is that that's been endowed by God. In fact, in the language of the Constitution, it says nature's laws and nature's God. If you pull out your money right now, what's your money say on it? In God God we trust. Now, I I see the direction of, of the Western world moving faster and faster away from a recognition of God. But I just need to tell you, I'm very thankful that I live in this country and that the founders of this country recognized God in the primary documents. So, yeah, that's a, that's a problem. If you uh, do not have God above the state, then the state will act as though they're God. Number five, man's legality does not equal morality. Amen. Hopefully you catch this right away. Basically what this means is just because it's okay by law doesn't mean it's okay with God. Just because a bunch of humans by popular vote decided this is what we're going to deem Proper, acceptable, and okay. That doesn't make it proper, acceptable, and okay in God's eyes. So legality does not equal morality. Um, I just wrote down in my notes, not everything that is legal is right, and not everything that is prohibited is wrong. We we need a higher standard than man's legislation to determine that. Number six, this is a big one down through time. What's the error? The error is this. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is is Lord now that was a really good spot for an amen let me give you another chance right here we go amen. Caesar is not Lord Jesus is Lord amen. amen absolutely right Jesus is Lord in fact this for the very first Christians was the reason why the state killed them in fact this was the encouragement to Christians uh, by those who were friends secular friends look What's it going to hurt, they would say. Just take a little pinch of incense. It's just a little bit. It's just a tiny bit. of, And just burn it to Caesar. That's all you have to do. It's the tiniest little nod of the hat, dip of the knee to recognize Caesar as Lord. And then you're good, man. That's all it's going to take. And do you know what the Christians would do? We're not going to do it. Because Jesus is Lord. What are you, troublemaker? What are you going to... And eventually... They would be arrested. Eventually, they would be bound, seized, and killed. This, folks, Christians, this is at the very core of the gospel message. Uh, if, you, if you divide down to the, to the lowest denominator of what it means to be a Christian, this one here is key. Caesar's not Lord. The news media is not Lord. Um... Whatever particular form of entertainment that you subscribe to is not Lord Jesus is our Lord. Uh, lastly, and the, and there's a reason why I left this one to last because this is this is by far the critical component that's going to help us to understand how the Christian needs to respond to immoral, tyrannical government decisions. Uh, here's the truth: you will not simply answer to the state you will also answer to God. Therefore, conscience, the erosion of a social conscience and the reform of your own Christian conscience after the will of God must be of highest concern. Okay, that's a really long sentence. Uh, Basically, what we understand from God's word is this. Because you will stand judgment, not your parents on your behalf, not your pastor on your behalf. You will stand judgment before perfection of God Almighty, as the Bible says repeatedly throughout the New Testament. To give an answer for all of the deeds well done in the body, whether good or bad. Because that is true. You need a reformed, functioning conscience. All, all humans were given a conscience. Right, Jiminy, Jiminy Cricket, right? Your conscience will be your what? Yeah, oh, wonderful. Good luck teaching that today. <laughs> conscience? Do you know what's happened to the conscience of people in this world? It is so squelched and, and uh, twisted. It's almost unrecognizable. The Bible tells us in Romans 1 that they, sinners, you and I in many ways too, suppress the truth. And there's your conscience saying, like, look here, don't do it, don't go that way. Or do this, and you really ought to. And we're, we're really good at going, la, 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 la. <laughs> right? We don't want to listen. Conscience is critical when we understand the role of accountability and judgment and how that relates to government. All right. I I would imagine there's a lot more that can be said. You may have questions on some of these. Uh, I I wanted to lay them out for you because these are all preliminary corrections that we must be able to understand such that we will make sense of Romans 13. So with that, let's look together. Romans chapter 13, we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 7. Paul says this. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. But for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing, he is God's servant. An agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, <coughs> then honor. Okay, as as I have uh, taken my efforts to understand what the Holy Spirit wants to speak to the church, uh, particularly through the Apostle Paul in the context in which it's written, uh, I have I have laid out four main observations that are going to be listed as like run-on sentences. So I would get marks off on my English. Uh, grammar or you know work here, but um, ho- hopefully you'll be able to see what I'm trying to do by giving us just a really long sentence for every one of these observations. The first one is this. God has established government. I, there's no way around this. Back in verse one, it says everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities. Why? Why, Paul? Why should I submit? Here's the reason why. There's no authority except that which God has established. If you didn't catch it the first time, Paul repeats himself. The authorities that exist have been established by who? So that's where we start. <laughs> uh, God establishes governments; therefore, the Christian must not be insurgent. Now, there were a lot of words I could have picked for that blank. If you look in your Bible, uh, my Bible uses the word "rebel." Now, "rebel" is a word that has some some breadth to what it could be referencing. And so I had to go and, and look it up in a little more detail. Like, what are we talking about here with rebelling? Because it, it seems like under unjust treatment at some level, uh, there's a pattern in scripture of people rebelling. I mean, Jesus himself even uh, escaped away when they were trying to seize him. Come on, Jesus, why you're rebelling, right? Is, is that what it means? And it doesn't. The, the Greek word that's used here is a word in reference to causing particular offensive pressure against authority. This is the this is the kid who's just always like, make me me. I don't I don't want to. Right. That's that's the attitude of what's happening here. It, it, is, it is those who are scheming to put together a not a passive resistance or any civil disobedience, but to put together a plot in subjugation of the authority. What's the best word I could come up with that? Somebody who's insurgent. Does everybody get what we mean by that? Rebel is a a broad word. Resist, I've read in other versions. And both of those I find a little bit uncomfortable for the larger teaching that we have from God's word. So what does the word genuinely mean? It's an offensive characterization of somebody who is um, not wanting to be on board and therefore striving against the government. The Bible has forbid you and I from that. So why? Okay, why? Well, that's because God is the highest authority, which means if God instituted a lower one over you, your obedience to it is done so in recognition of a higher authority. And who is, who is this person who is the highest authority? Yep, let's, use, let's use his name that we know. His name is Jesus. In fact, I want you to be able to see uh, from the Old Testament, how this is proven true for us. We read a verse already. You you heard it uh, from Bonnie this morning out of Isaiah chapter nine. I have it up here on the screen, but let me read it to you once more. It says this, for unto us a child is born, a son is is given. Who is this? This is Jesus. And what does it say next? And the government will what? Be on his shoulders. shoulders." Who's the highest authority church? Jesus Jesus is the highest authority authority. And so Christian, you do not have permission to be insurgent. God has established the lower government and you will answer not just to them, but you will answer to the higher authority who is Jesus as well. And now we're going to get to the tough part, even if those authorities are hostile and wicked. So I I was with you pastor up till that point I was tracking, but you're, you're trying to tell me that I can't be insurgent to put a posse together, get my militia and all my guns together. If they're wicked, yeah. That's that, as a Christian, yes. That's exactly what I'm telling you. And in order for us to see this teaching, not, not only can you see it obviously through here, right? Verse two in Romans thirteen. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. But how do I know that I I'm not free to do that, even in the in the instance of unjust suffering? And in order for us to see that, I have to ask you to turn in your Bibles to another passage. Now, go with me to First Peter. And we're we're going to be in two places in 1 Peter. I would love for you to see it in the Bible right in front of you. Um, I also have the words up here on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Listen to Peter's instruction to slaves. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also what? Also to those who are harsh. There is a principle of Christian submission that is given to the highest authority of Jesus over the lower, even if they are wicked. I'm just going to tell you, I really struggle with that. I kind of wish the Bible didn't say that. And yet we are given a picture of it even further if we keep reading down. For it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. How's it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Let's talk about Jesus for a minute. Did Jesus get a fair trial, yes or no? no. Did Jesus submit under an unfair trial? Man, come on, come on, right? Yeah, he did. Was Jesus beaten fairly? Did he submit when he was beaten? Yes. Yes. Was Jesus justly condemned to die? No, it wasn't just. And yet, did he lay his life down on the cross? Yes. Yes. To this you were called. He left you an example that you'd follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to who? The higher judge. He was able to submit because there was a a higher judge. So that's our first one. Number two, um, the government is God's servant. This, this one I was really thankful for to see. I don't know if you knew this in the text. That the government doesn't serve man. Huh, how about that one? The government serves who? Supposed to. Look with me again in the text. Verse uh, 4. For he is, that's the, the one who is executing uh, judgment on behalf of the government. He is God's what? All right, with me in verse 4. Let's get all together on this. Uh, for he is God's what? God's servant. Does your Bible say something different? Everybody have servant there? Verse 4. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword for nothing. If you're still with me, it says he is God's what? Servant. Jump in verse 6 with me. Verse 6 says, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's what? The authorities are God's servant. Therefore, Christian, you need to do what's right. Right? If the government is serving God, what should you do? You should probably be serving God. And so if the government enacts a policy or an authority that is in service to God, who are you to rebel against that? They're serving God. You should be all the more serving God. Why do you do that? Well, it's because God's the moral authority. In fact, look with me back into the text once more. You'll see in verse 4, he says, For he is God's servant to do you what? Help me out. Guys, don't let me lose you here. I'm, I'm going as quick as I can on this, but don't let me lose you yet. The servant here is, is on behalf of God, serving him to do you what? To do you good. Take, take that for, just don't read it and be done with it. Think with me for a moment. Who is it that defines good and evil? Not the government. It is God who has designed and destined government to serve him according to what He has determined to be good, which means for you, you need to do whatever is right because God is the moral authority. Every track with me? Like, yes, good, I get it. Here comes the bad one. Actually, before before we do, I just want to show you again from Isaiah 9, how we know that. What is Jesus called? Wonderful. Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who is the moral authority? What's his name? His name is Jesus. That's right. So all, we're good with all this. Even if it means suffering? Hold on, man. You mean you're calling me to do the right thing even if I'm going to suffer for it? To understand this, we got to go back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4 this time. Again, I have the text up here on the screen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. This is resurrection he's talking about. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a criminal Uh, or a murderer, or a thief, or any kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. Everybody see it? So here's what this means. Christian, you need to do what is what? You need to do what's right. God's the one who's defined what right and wrong is, and you're to do it even if it means you're going to suffer for doing it. Now, this second observation is going to be kind of the, the flip side of the third. So number two and three go together here. Here's number three. The government has been granted the sword of judgment. This is just a fact. This is just true. If you look with me again into the text, back into verse four, he's God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. God is the one who has positioned government in the place of bearing the sword of punishment. So what should we do? Therefore, the Christian must submit because of God's judicial authority. God is the one who will judge and has positioned government in the authority, this, this lesser authority, for governing according to justice. God has done that. Well, where did that come from? Who, who is the... Who is... The judicial authority. Well, back to Isaiah 9. You'll see it right down here. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with what? Who, who are we talking about? Jesus will do this. Uh, there's, a, there's a better one in Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. This is a prophecy of who? I feel like I lost half you. Who is this we're talking about? The root, the, the, the shoot that comes from the stump, this is Jesus we're talking about. And the branch that will bear fruit, the spirit of the Lord will rest on, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees or with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will what? He will judge the needy. With justice, he'll give decisions over the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. There is not time for me to share with you all of the verses that continually, Old Testament-wise, to speak of God's judgment over the kings and the nations and the governments of earth. Who is the judicial authority? What's his name? Jesus. And so, Christian, you must submit even if that means judgment man these are this fourth ones are all hard right it's true though this is this is what we are left with you must submit to the government even if that means judgment now i know i've kind of been going long just bear with me here on this, because there's a critical message in this particular one that I have got to share with you. I want to show you again how this comes from First Peter. It's right here. For the time of judgment has come to begin with God's household. Remember, Christians are being killed. Christians are being taken away, captured, burned alive, thrown into the Colosseum to be eaten by the wild animals, all because they won't claim Caesar as their Lord. Peter says, "I guess judgment begun." And if it begins, let it begin with us, with God's family. And what will the outcome be for those who don't believe them? If it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and of the sinner? And for you and I to hear these two. Number two was, this is a little review for you, right? The Christian needs to do what is what? Do right. Right? And uh, the second one means that you need to submit. So we have doing the right thing and number two. And not doing the wrong thing in number three. What about the question at hand? What about when man's laws command me to do something that God has forbidden? What about when man's laws forbid me to do something that God has commanded? The Bible gives us many pictures of this but we don't have a term for it and dependent upon the context this term is used differently I want to I give you a word for it it's called civil disobedience Christian you are called to submit to the government through civil disobedience if the government is asking you to do something God has forbidden or if the government forbids something that God has commanded and here's how that works at this point you should be like i feel like you've given me a paradox how how do we do that and here's how the government always will give you two options do you know that they'll always give you two options you either do what we say or you get a fine you get arrested you lose your property you lose your tax status privileges right everybody with me on this the government will always give you two options and so The Bible and what I'm referencing here is that you need to submit to the government through disobedience, meaning I'll take option B. I'm not going to obey what you're saying because it's against God's law. Therefore, send in the lions. And I want to give you two examples of that from the Old Testament. Um, By the way, there's many examples of this that come up. Do you guys remember the midwives in Egypt, right? What What was the decree from Pharaoh? Every time it's a boy baby, you're supposed to what? Kill it. And what did the midwives do? Civil disobedience. They said, uh, we're not going to do that. And then they made up a story with it. Uh, another example, this is the wise men. Do you remember the wise men with Jesus, the magi? They come and they see Jesus and Herod says, hey, you guys, go go check out what's going on in Bethlehem. And when you find the baby, come report back to me so I can send a little gift. The magi, the Bible says, are warned in a dream after they see baby Jesus, or the child Jesus, and they return a different way. Did they obey Herod? Civil disobedience. Uh, Two examples, though, that show your willingness to be judged. The first is Queen Esther. So in Esther, we know the story. There is a plot amongst uh, Mordecai and uh, other evil uh, men who desire to kill the Jews, of of which Esther is one. And uh, of the decree that's going to be given, Esther knows it is against the law to go before the king. You're going to break the law if you go before the king and make a petition. And so we have this in Esther uh, chapter 4 verse 6. This is what Esther says to her family. She says, "'Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, uh, days night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done... I will go to the king even though it's against the law. And what does she say? And if I perish, I perish. perish. Do you see there were two options? You obey or you die. And Esther says, I'll take option two. If I die, I die. Well, one other really good example. uh, Do you remember the story of Daniel? Very similar governmental oppression. The government says by the scheming of evil men, I'm sick of Daniel. I'm sick of Daniel's God. We're going to make a rule that says this is a law. You cannot pray to any other God than our king. That's it. And they locked it in what they call the law of the Medes and the Persians. Can you imagine that? If that law was passed, you're not allowed to pray. You're not allowed to gather. I'm I'm foreshadowing here a little bit, but do you realize in the past two years that's happened in some countries? That's a little foreshadowing, but here it is from Daniel chapter 6 the royal administrators, prefects, satrists, advisors, governors, they all agreed that the king should issue an edict and force a decree that anyone who prays to a god other than a human during the next 30 days except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty issue a decree and put it in writing so it can't be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians which can't be repealed. So King Darius put in a decree in writing. Watch this. Now when Daniel learned Of the oppressive governmental law that was passed against the higher authority, what's Dan do? He goes home, goes upstairs, opens his windows so everyone can see, and he bows down towards Jerusalem three times on his knees, praying and giving thanks to God. And the Bible says, just as he always did. Civil, what? Civil disobedience. You know the rest of the story. They found out, they go to the king, and what do they do with him? They throw him in the lion's den. And so I want to submit to you, Christian, you must submit to the government, even if that means judgment. All right, told you this was a tough message. Ready? Number four, last one. Uh, The government is due what belongs it. Oh, you you guys are going to love this one. Look in the text. Verse 6. This is why you pay, oh, what a... I'm so glad I came to church today, right? That's right. This is why you pay taxes for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Uh, so, Christian, if the government is due what belongs to it, you must give it what it's owed. Simple enough, right? Uh, why? Uh, well, <laughs> and do you remember uh, Jesus in, ta- in getting, he's going to get trapped by uh, the Jews. They're like going to Jesus, hey, Jesus, is it right that you should... Pay taxes to Caesar. What does Jesus say? You know the story. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God. Here's what you might not know, though, is that when it comes to giving taxes to Caesar, do you know what Rome would do with them? They would use your money to support the temple festivals with sexual immorality, all kinds of evil and debauchery that's happening. In fact, pagan sacrifices, like sacrificing meat to idols. They're going to use your money for that. Uh, they would use it for military conquests. Um, they're going to use it for the minting of coinage upon which the, in, the image of Caesar is printed, which for the Jews was like, that was a huge no-no. That's against the Ten Commandments. The Jews are very, very offended by that. They would have specific taxes that would come randomly for building projects that they needed money for, for the glory of Rome and Caesar. That's not the glory of God. And then there were also temple taxes that the Jews had to pay. I I don't sit well with this, you guys. I don't like this one. Because I really do not want to contribute the money that I am in charge of managing to evil, wicked things. And yet, what does Jesus say? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what is God. Why do we do that? And it's because God is our conscience's authority. Remember, Remember the conscience. What you know to be right and wrong is what you will stand judgment for. And who is the one that directs and reforms our conscience? It's God. It's Jesus. In fact, it's the Holy Spirit that God gives us that helps reframe and that we would understand our conscience. Again, you'll see it here, the very last line of Isaiah 7. The zeal of the Almighty, that word zeal is a keen fixation to look intently on something. It's an awareness. This from Isaiah 11. It was the spirit of the Lord that rested on him. It was the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now, none of us in here delight in the fear of the Lord naturally. You don't. It is only by God's spirit that you and I learn to place God as that higher authority. So because God, Jesus, the spirit, is the authority over our conscience, you and I need to give the government what they're due, even if the government is not conscious of God. Um, As we're following up here from 1 Peter 4, just to show you at the very end, how do you do this? How in the world can I do this? Well, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good, continue to do what's right. The only way you are able to pay taxes, as you should, even to things to be used for that you disagree with, is because you know they, the government, will answer to a higher authority. And so my conscience is not bound to this lower authority. My conscience is bound to the authority of God. All right. We, whew, we made it. Now, now we really got to answer the question. So what do I do then? Are you guys still with me? We're wrapping up here. Number one, what do I do when man's law conflicts with God's word? Well, you better know God's word. Understand there are many people even Christians, who want to resist the government through civil disobedience because it's something they don't like. Uh Uh-uh. Wrong. It's not because you just don't like it. That doesn't give you any authority towards civil disobedience. It's only God's word that is the higher authority. So if you're going to claim some form of resistance against the government... To make sure that you are actually not rebelling against God himself, it's predicated on this truth. You're claiming to be God's word? Then you better what? You better know God's word. And so that's my just first application for you. How well do you know God's word? There's no version of your standing upon some high horse of government frustration because it's just not the way I like it. Who cares? Who cares what you like? Do you submit to God's authority? Yes or no? Because if you do... Then that gives you a grounding to say this is right and this is wrong. But if you don't know God's word, then, man, go to Bible study. Figure it out. Spend some time in God's word. That is the uh, predicated application to begin with. Number two, uh, get involved. What what do I do when man's law conflicts with God's word? Why do you think God put you here? Get involved. So according to your conscience... You need to be invested in political reform in our world. Use your voice. You live in an amazing country. You have an amazing opportunity to do this through voting for those policies, those particular representatives, and a president who all desire to follow as God's servant. Does this make sense? Don't, don't pick somebody who's not serving God. Don't pick a policy that doesn't... Acknowledge and reverence God. Don't vote for those things. Get involved and use your voice to work for those things that are God's servant. Because what did we learn today? Government is what God's servant. That's right. Government is God's servant. You better make sure that when you have ability to cast a vote, that you do so for the one who is God's uh, servant. Number three, you need to do what is right no matter what. Do what is right. No matter what, even if that means you're going to be under judgment. Um, I want want to share with you just the story again from Daniel, uh, the the three heroes. I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You you know the story, right? When you hear the sound, harp and the lyre and all the instruments, bow down and worship the image. And what do these dudes do? Not going to do it. Here's the text. It says, they say to King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, judgment, right? God, the God that we serve is able to deliver us and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know your majesty, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Do you see the civil disobedience? They, were, they, they picked option B. They were willing to submit to the to the government and die and go into the fire because they had a higher fear of God. And do you know what this leaves you with, church? I, by the way, this is so awesome. Because look with me back in Romans 13. This is, we're, we're right towards the end. So just humor me for a minute. Go go back there. Look what it says in verse 3. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. Who's the highest r- ruler? What's his name? Jesus. 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 You don't have to fear the judgment of God if you do what is right. Yeah, sure, you might get killed. Big deal. (laughs) Right? I mean, think through the history of Christians who had to say that. Eh, I might die. So what? I will be vindicated on the day of God's glory and judgment when the righteous judge comes and I will have no fear of him because I'm doing what's right. Okay with me on that? Awesome. Good. Number four, lastly, is this. In your submission as a Christian, you need to be willing to suffer the consequences of civil disobedience in Jesus' name. So be very careful on this, right? You, you and I don't have much grounding for a resistance against the government that's based on you as an authority. It needs to be because of Jesus that I'm taking a stand on these things. Not because I don't, I don't want to pay my taxes because I don't want to. That, that won't work. You need to take a stand because of Jesus' name. Uh, Just three verses quick on this from the book of Acts. Uh, Peter and John are told, don't preach in Jesus' name. Look what they say. Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. One chapter later, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than man. And do you know what they did with these preachers? Locked them up. And do you know what they did as they left? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing Because they had been counted worthy of suffering. Disgrace for the name of Jesus. So uh, in your submission as a Christian, you and I need to be willing to suffer the consequences of a civil disobedience. That's that second option of submission. But make sure that you are doing it in Jesus' name. Amen.